So perhaps while uh, I was reading that passage, you were standing there thinking, hmm, that's not a typical Christmas Eve text. Bit of a downer, I'd say. You would be right. This is the part of the nativity story we often just gloss over. It's the hard part. You know, it's, I, was, I was thinking about it, it's a scene that never actually makes it into the kids' Christmas pageant. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think to be more accurate, I need to t- sit down with Jer- uh, Jeremy uh, next year and say, you know what, if we're going to be really true to the text, we really need the mass genocide portion in our kids', in our kids pageant. That's what I say. But they always say no, so whatever. Okay, that's fine. We don't have to be accurate here at this church. That's fine. It's a hard part, for sure. And it's really the only hard part in an otherwise idyllic portrait of the nativity scene. Now, typically, I preach this message. I preach at this time every year. It's the Sunday before our Christmas Eve service. I've been doing it for many years now. And so, in preparation, I actually went back and looked at the sermons I had preached on this Sunday uh, in the past. And as I did, I noticed a theme that came up. In 2019, I wrote this. I wrote, we've had a hard year. Some hard things have happened. But I realized we said that last year, and we'll say it again next year. And then 2020 hit, and I wrote at the end of 2020, I say that this year, 2020, was a hard year. And then in 2021, I wrote, I'd call myself a prophet, Or if I had a crystal ball, you don't need that to know that next year will have its hardships just as this one did. And then just last year in 2022, I wrote, here we we are again at the end of 2022, and it's still true. Things didn't get any easier. There's hard parts in life. There's hard parts in the story and we're in this Advent seri- sermon series in Matthew 2, where we are looking at the fulfillment of all that Christ did in his, particularly in his early birth narrative. We're calling it Fulfilled Christmas. In telling Jesus' origin story, Matthew is very, very interested in revealing how Jesus' birth fulfilled everything that was spoken of him, even the hard parts. Each Sunday, we've been looking at a section in Matthew 2 and then going back to the prophecies that they fulfilled. Now, this word fulfilled in the Greek is an interesting one. It's the word pleuro, and it can mean a couple things. Literally, what it means, in the literal sense, is simply just to complete that which was promised. When Amazon fulfills your order, they provide you something that they are promised, hopefully by Christmas, Right? Anyone waiting on a package today going, come on, Amazon, don't let me down. Anyone out there? Yeah, a couple of you? Yeah, it's this fulfillment of like, we promise you that this thing is going to get here on this date. And you go, you better fulfill it. You better make it right. You better do what you promised. But in a more broad sense, it can also mean to provide greater insight. To bring to light what previously had been in the shadows. So to say that Christ's birth narrative fulfills all that the prophets spoke of is to say that Israel's history is completed and magnified in Christ. If you were to look back on Israel's history and then you'd look onto the Jesus' birth narrative, and Matthew is very interested in doing this, he wants to show us 
that Christ's life, his early life, completed and magnified all of Israel's history. Jesus brings glory to the story. Let's take a look at that. Today, our part of the story is about a king who is so paranoid with eliminating any threats to his throne, he has all males two years old or under killed. Now, can you imagine the weeping of the mothers in that region? I mean, it it puts a pit in your stomach to, to hear the cries of the mothers. But we are told, says Matthew, is that it was to fulfill something. It was to complete or magnify something. And he gives us the exact quotation in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 15. Let's read what Jeremiah wrote on this. Jeremiah 31, 15 says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. It's almost an exact quotation. Matthew doesn't use anything or or mix any prophecies together. He goes straight for it. He quotes it almost identically. Thus says the Lord, a voice heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, we discover that Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, God even changes Jacob's name to Israel to kind of make that connection. That Jacob fathers the 12 tribes of Israel. And Rachel is the wife that Jacob loved. He was the fav- she was the favorite one. And she bears him Joseph, who is loved more than any of the other sons. And what we're to know, what we're trying to kind of understand with that is that Rachel plays this very special role in developing the nation of Israel. She was the chosen favored one, then she bears the chosen favored one in Joseph, who eventually brings all of Israel to Egypt. So Rachel has a special role to play in establishing the nation of Israel. In fact, Ruth picks up on this, the book of Ruth. And she says, along with Leah, the, the uh, the two women, they're the ones that establish and build it. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel or Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And so Rachel is seen, as time goes on, Rachel is seen as, as this woman, this special chosen woman who bears the special chosen son. And she, along with it, she's building up the nation of Israel. And so she's come to be known as sort of the mother. If Jacob is the father, then Rachel is the mother of Israel. And that's how she's spoken of as time goes on. So when Rachel is weeping for her children, when Jeremiah uses that imagery in 31, what he's saying is that she's crying for her children, for the nation, for the entire nation of Israel. It's not literally her children, it's her children. It's the whole, it's the whole thing. She's the builder. She's a, an establisher. She's the mother of Israel. And so when she weeps for her children, she's weeping for, over Israel. And we're told in Jeremiah 31 that she's weeping because they are no more. They're no more. Now, if you read further in Jeremiah 31, you discover that this is referring to the exile. The most disastrous event 
in Israel's history. As they are unfaithful to God over generations and generations, God finally decides, okay, enough is enough. There has to be a separation here. So he sends Israel into exile from conquering nations, Babylon, Assyria. He, he, he moves them out. And so there, this no more language, what she's weeping for is this tragic, disastrous, catastrophic event in Israel's history in which they are exiled out of the land. And Jeremiah earlier, he actually gives us some insight into why this happened. In Jeremiah 11, he says this. He says, this is why they've turned their back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them. That they cannot escape. They've run to their iniquities of their fathers. They've broken the covenant that I made with them. And therefore I will bring this disastrous event of exile to it. And so then in Jeremiah 31 we see a mother of the nation weeping over her children as they head off to exile. Now at the core of exile is this idea of separation. Exile is all about separating from the ones that you love. So there's this literal separation, a separation from the land. They literally have to leave where they were. The promised land that God had given them, they have to now exile away physically from that. We're actually told in Jeremiah 31 that uh, Rachel is weeping in Ramah, which is, we learn is actually a staging post for the deportation. We learn that later in Jeremiah. He tells us in Jeremiah 40. It says this, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after the commander of the imperial guard had released him from Ramah. There it is. That's the place. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile to Babylon. And so there's this exile is all about a few, uh, this separation. There's this physical separation. They're brought to Ramah as a staging post before they head off to Babylon, physically separated from their land, from one another, from their identity. But it isn't just a physical separation, it's a spiritual one as well. It's ultimately a separation from God because the temple resided in Jerusalem. And that was where God's presence in the Old Testament resided. So to be expelled from the temple was to lose your worship and your closeness with God. Exile was just as much a spiritual death as it was a physical one. So what Matthew does is he takes a, the weeping mothers who mourn for their children in physical death in our passage this morning, and he connects it to the weeping mother who mourns for her children in spiritual death. So this is the connection he's making. There's these mothers who are weeping literally for a physical death, a physical death that's happened to them in Matthew 2. And then he's connecting it to a mother who is weeping over the spiritual death of her story, of her children. So Matthew takes this specific part of the Christmas account and links it back to Israel's history and says, whatever is going on here, Jesus will bring glory to the story. 
somehow in this story, he's going to complete and magnify what's going on here, even though it's the hard part. That whatever it is that Jesus is doing, whatever is happening throughout his birth narrative stuff, he's fulfilling, he's completing, he's magnifying what is going on in Israel's history. The, the history that you've lived for generations. Somehow Jesus is walking that path and he's going to magnify it, he's going to complete it, he's going to fulfill it in himself. Even the hard parts. What I want to show you here, is this isn't the only time Matthew does that. He intersects Jesus' story with Israel's story all throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish converts. That's his audience. Who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to reinforce how Jesus completes and magnifies their entire history. It's almost like he's writing, he's like, I know you have all of this background. And I know you believe in Jesus. So I want to show you in my writings particularly very early on in my writings, I want to show you how Jesus actually walked the same path your forefathers did. And he didn't just walk it, he fulfilled it. He completed it. He magnified it. Matthew retells Israel's well-known story, but he puts Jesus right in the middle as the main character. Let's, let's take a look for a few minutes and see these connections. Matthew 1. You look at Matthew 1. The very first words in the entire book of Matthew, literally, if you literally read them in the book, is a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. That's what's written. That's what literally it means. It's a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you start a, a book within the beginning, at the beginning, there's something happening here in the beginning, your mind should always go back to Genesis. Ah, whatever he's doing here, Whatever Matthew is going to explore, he's going to do it because he's telling you something is being retold. There's a new beginning that's happening. So this is a, in the beginning thing of Matthew, of Jesus. He puts him right in the middle of that story. And then he lays out a genealogy of Israel. He goes, hey, in the beginning, there was Jesus. And look where he came from, your entire history. Here's this whole generational a plot of what happened and how the generations came to be to get to where we are today. But more than that, then, later in Matthew 1, he says that this Jesus is to be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's almost like Matthew is saying, this Jesus, what I'm about to do, he didn't just retell the story. He's not just retelling it, he's reliving it. He's actually going to be part of this. So this isn't just Jesus kind of from afar telling you about your history. This is a Jesus, this is an Emmanuel, this is a God with us kind of Jesus. He's actually going to show up on the scene and he's actually going to live the story, not just tell you the story. And then Matthew goes, all right, buckle up. Matthew 2, here we go. Let me tell you the story that Jesus lived. Matthew 2. Let's start with our passage this morning. Jesus' birth is a threat to a king who responds by killing all infant males. Okay, that's Jesus' story. Jesus' story is, in Matthew 2, a king is threatened by the growth, by the birth, by the start of Jesus, and so he kills all the infant males. Now, where have we heard that before? That's the birth of Israel in Exodus 1. 
right? Exodus is just a group of brothers for a little while, but then we're told in Exodus 1 that this nation starts to grow. It, it's, like, it's almost like it's birthed. It, it grows. It's, it's there. And there is a king, Pharaoh, who is threatened by the growth, by the threat that is this new nation. And so he has all the males killed, all the infant males killed. So Jesus' story, killing of infant males, Israel, the start of Israel's story is the exact same thing. Killing the infant males, killing the infant males. We find it in Exodus 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Next, Jesus is then, in our story, we looked at it last week, Jesus has declared God's son, and he's called out of Egypt. So Jesus has declared God's son, and he is called out of Egypt. What happens next in Israel's story? Israel is called God's son, and they are called and brought out of Egypt. Exodus 4. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go. You have Jesus, there's a killing of, there's a threat that has to be dealt with. He is called the Son of God, and then he is called out of Egypt. Literally, he goes out of Egypt. Israel is born, there's a threat, infant males are killed, they are called God's Son, and then they are brought out of Egypt. Oh, we're not even close to being done yet. Matthew 3, what happens now in Matthew 3? John prepares the way of Jesus in the wilderness. John prepares the way of Jesus in the wilderness. Now what happens next in Israel's story? There's a figure that rises who helps prepare Israel in the wilderness. Moses. Moses arises. And we start to see the connection between what John was doing to prepare the way of Jesus and what Moses was doing to prepare the way for Israel. In fact, as John is doing his ministry, people start to make that connection. They start to see what he's doing. They go, I've seen this before. I know what you're trying to do. They actually ask him directly about it in John 1, 21 through 23. They say this, and they asked him, this is the crowds, and they asked him, are you the prophet now, the prophet, notice it's capitalized, that's a title. The prophet was Moses. He was the first prophet of Israel. And so there was this idea that at some point when the Messiah came, the prophet would show up. Moses would show up, sort of a reincarnated. Whatever the Messiah was going to do, he was going to be like Moses. And so they called him the prophet. The prophet was going to come someday. So they're directly asking John the Baptist, hey, you sure look a lot like Moses. Are you, are, you the, are you the prophet? Are you the one to come? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way. That's my job. Just as Moses prepares the way for Israel in the wilderness, John prepares the way for Jesus. In the wilderness. What happens next in the story in Matthew 3? Then Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. That's the, next, that's the next part in the story. 
John then helps him, walks him through the baptism picture. What happens in Israel's story? They pass through the baptism in the Red Sea. The Red Sea is, in, in the biblical mind, the Red Sea was Israel's baptism. Paul actually takes this idea. He actually runs with this idea in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, when he connects what was going on with the Israel story, walking through the Red Sea with baptism. He says this, Our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And Jesus, next part of the story of Jesus, is he's baptized, the next part of the story in Israel is then they get their baptism through the Red Sea. What happens next in the story? Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted three times to not trust, to test, and to turn from God, and then he spends 40 days in the wilderness. What happens next in Israel's story? Israel is tempted three times not to trust, to test, and to turn from God, and then spends 40 years in the wilderness. We read this actually in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy explains there's this, there's this testing that goes on that they're doing right at the beginning of their wilderness journey, and then Deuteronomy picks up on that and tells us these three temptations and what they were tempted for. Then Jesus literally quotes those Deuteronomy passage in his own temptation. So he spends 40 days in the wilderness and is tempted three times. Israel, tempted three times, spends 40 years in the wilderness themselves. What happens next in the story? Jesus then, in, Ma in Matthew 4, he heads beyond the Jordan, if you see. He calls his 12 disciples, and then he drives out at the end of Matthew 4, he drives out all affliction diseases and, and, and ailments and things. He drives out all of this affliction. So he crosses the Jordan, beyond the Jordan. He calls his 12 disciples, and then he heals all the afflictions in there. What happens next in the story of Israel? After their 40 years of wandering, they finally get where? To the edge of the Jordan. And how do they cross the Jordan? Well, we're told in Joshua 3, 10, 12, and 13, it says this, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out the other nations. He lists a bunch of nations there. But this is how you're going to drive those, those, uh, these people who are going to afflict you. This is how you're going to drive them out. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, each, and each tribe a man, and with the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. Jesus crosses the Jordan. He calls 12, by, by, you, by calling 12 men, and then he begins to drive out all the afflictions in the land. And what is Israel called to do? Cross this Jordan with 12 men, which ultimately then represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and then drive out all the affliction. Move, get all these nations out of here. Drive out this affliction so that you can live in peace. We could keep going, friends. Matthew 5, it's a little out of order. Matthew 5 is what? Start of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up onto a mountain, receives the fulfilled law, and comes back down to give it to the people. I mean, it will keep going and going and going. Matthew is very interested in you seeing that Jesus 
is not just telling the story, he's living it. He is the story. In whatever way that we can imagine, Jesus is fulfilling all of Israel's history. But here's the problem. Israel doesn't live out their calling that God had for them. They don't finish their story. They fail miserably. Remember what Jeremiah said. They have turned their back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. They don't finish. They don't complete. They don't magnify their story. God calls them into a land, drive them out to be a, a witness to the world of what God is like. And time and time again, generation after generation, they fail in their story. They fail in what they are called to do. But friends, where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. Jesus relives their story and then completes and magnifies all of Israel's history. Where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. From his genesis to his exodus, to his baptism, to his 40 days in the wilderness, to his temptations, to him crossing the Jordan with 12 men to drive out affliction, Jesus fulfills their story. The hardest parts even. And even the exile itself. He even fulfills that for on a cross, Christ experienced the ultimate separation. A physical death, sure, but a spiritual one more often. He is separated from his father and he cries out in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus walks your story even through the exile. He knows what separation feels like. It was an exile that he did not deserve, but he fulfilled because Jesus brings glory to the story. And their story is our story. Let's call the band up as we finish. Friends, we're here at the end of 2023. And it's still true. Things don't get any easier. Uh, my, uh, my grandpa, he passed away a few weeks ago, and I had the honor of doing his, his service. But it was really weird because my grandfather outlived my own father. It was just this kind of weird kind of headspace of doing that. And this year we've lost a lot of our friends. Ann Holmes and Larry Law and Bruce Chilton, and David Jepson, and Alfreda Ferguson, and of course, just this week, Bonnie Schoenthal. The first time I met Bonnie, it was funny, I would just finished preaching my first sermon here about eight years ago, and I got done, and of course, you're a little like self, you know, you don't know how you did, right? You, you, you're, you're feeling a little like, ah, do they like it? Do they like me? I don't know. And I'll never forget, I was standing in the foyer afterwards, and Bonnie Schoenthal, she came marching right up to me, and I'm going, oh boy, <laughs> here we go, here we go. And she looked me in the eye and she said, 
I was not expecting that. I didn't know what that meant. But then she gave me a little smirk, and then she just walked away. Bonnie, uh, she was never one for long-winded endings. See, Israel's story is our story. It's one of exile, separation, physical and spiritual death. But Jesus brings glory to the story. And where we fail, he is faithful. From his birth to his life to his death to his resurrection, Jesus walks the path with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. He walks our story with us. And where we fail, he is faithful. Because he knows what exile feels like. And then he accomplished it. He magnified it. He fulfilled it. So that we might have a way back from exile. Jesus fulfills our story. Whatever hard parts are for you this Christmas season. Wherever we are experiencing separation death, spiritual emptiness, a a separation from one another perhaps, a a separation in ourselves. We we don't know where we are. That's what the exile does. It separates us from ourselves. It separates us from each other. It separates us from the land. It separates us from God himself. Whatever hard part you're going through, whatever this season has brought, may we as a church glorify the one who glorifies our story, who fulfills it all, and where we fail, he is faithful. Jeremiah 1 is not a chapter of mourning, uh, ironically enough. Jeremiah 31 is not a chapter of mourning and lament. In fact, the verse that Matthew references is the only place in the whole chapter where it speaks of weeping. It's almost entirely a chapter of tidings of comfort and joy. So let me leave you with Jeremiah's words at the end of Jeremiah 31. That even in the middle where there's weeping, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, when I looked at them by the hand and I bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. May we stand and let us sing to a God where he is, where we fail, he is faithful. Stand with us, let's sing. Open up to number 170. We came upon the midnight clear.
out with one more song together. This is O Come All Ye Faithful, number 173. 